Welcome to Manufacturing Success, a podcast presented by the Fisher and Phillips Manufacturing Industry Practice Group. My name is Mike Carruth, a partner in the Columbia, South Carolina office of Fisher and Phillips. I'm a member of the Fisher and Phillips Manufacturing Industry Practice Group. Let's get started with this episode of Manufacturing Success. Today's conversation is part two of a three-part discussion we are having on how employers should legally prepare for a reduction in force. For this podcast, we're going to be talking about manufacturing employers. We'll talk about what they should understand about the Worker Adjustment Retraining Act, commonly referred to as WARN, and discuss how this federal law impacts reduction in force plans and implementation. Our guest for this conversation today is Dave Kresser, who is also a partner in Fisher and Phillips. He's out of the Atlanta, Georgia office. Dave is co-chair of the Fisher and Phillips Manufacturing Industry Practice Group. And as for our discussion today, Dave is certainly one of the attorneys in our firm recognized for his ability to help employers deal with RIF issues and specifically WARN-related issues. Dave was one of the attorneys in Fisher and Phillips who successfully handled one the largest class action WARN lawsuit in U.S. history. So he's definitely the man that you want to discuss this issue with. With that, Dave, welcome to Manufacturing Success Podcast. Thank you, Mike. The first question I have is to get things started, to make sure everyone understands when WARN comes into play, can you explain who is covered and what events trigger WARN? Sure, virtually everybody is covered. So this te the technical answer is if you're an employer that has 100 employees or more or 100 basically full-time equivalents. So it's, it's any manufacturer of any size. Uh, the WARN Act is a notice statute. So it, it requires 60 days advance notice if you have either a plant closing or a mass layoff at a single site of employment like a manufacturing plant. And those terms are very specifically defined in the, uh, in the WARN Act and it's implementing regulations by the Department of Labor. Yeah, what's the difference between a plant closing and a mass layoff for those of us that don't work in this area all the time? Yeah, so like many things under the WARN Act, there's some things that are obvious and things that aren't. So a plant closing is exactly what you would think it would be you are shutting down an entire site of employment. You're shutting down the plant, basically. And if you have an employment loss for 50 or more employees, excluding part-time employees, which we'll get into that definition, uh, then you've suffered a, uh, a plant closing. So it's, it's basically you're shutting down the plant and you have 50 employment losses at that plant. So a mass layoff is different in that it's not a plant closing. It's, it's a what it sounds like, a mass layoff. But in that case, you only trigger the worn notice obligations in one of two ways. If you have 500 uh, employment losses as a result of the layoff, or you have at least 50 and a third of the workforce. So anytime you have 500 employment losses, you're going to have a mass layoff. But if you have got a large facility, say a thousand employees, you can lay off 300 employees and not trigger the WARN Act because it's not a plant closing and it's not a mass layoff because while it's more than 50 employees, it's less than one third of the workforce, in that case, 30%. Okay. 
Interesting. <clears throat> so you did say earlier that one is a notice uh, re statute requires the notice. And then you just got through defining those two events. Uh, where do you start when making Warren Act notice triggering calculations? When, when do you when does that start, or when should yeah. that start for a manufacturer? Well, in an ideal world, which we don't live in, you would receive. You know, I'd get a call seventy five, eighty days out before somebody was going to either close a facility or have a, a significant layoff. But how you calculate whether or not notice is actually required. So you started a single site of employment. So if you're having a nationwide layoff, you don't look at all of your layoffs across the country or across a state or even across the city. You look at just an individual plant. So that's how you do the calculations. And so you, you start at the site. And then the next thing that I do is because both the plant closing and a mass layoff definition excludes part-time employees from their calculations, I will back out all of the part-time employees. So if you think about it, uh, you don't count part-time employees to determine whether you hit the 50 or the one-third mark in a mass layoff, for example. So if you've got 100 part-time employees, you can let all of them go. And then before you even start calculating whether or not you're going to have a, a worn covered event. So you know, this helps employers if they are having a mass layoff, if they have a lot of turnover, for example, those folks would be part-timers. Uh, if you typically are going to lay off your more recent hired people, so you can actually lay off a lot more than a third of the workforce when you get into the part-time. And so, and the reason for that is the WARN Act defines part-timers, again, one way you would think of normally and another way that is only found in the WARN Act. So a part-time employee is either a low hours person, he's working less than 20 hours a week, or the employee has been employed for fewer than six of the 12 months preceding the date notices due, which is very convoluted. But basically, if you hire somebody and let them go within eight months of their employment date, even if they're working 100 hours a week, they're considered to be a part-time employee. So anybody that you've hired in the last eight months, you can let go. And that is a tree falling in the woods for Warn Act purposes. They don't count. You don't, you don't even look at them. So you could have a facility that has, say, 400 employees. Uh, if 100 of them are part-time, you could let those 100 go. And then you could still lay off another 99 of the remaining 300 so you could really lay off 199 out of 400 and still not trigger the WARN Act just mathematically because of the part-time definition. So it's it's very uh, it's it's a one-off for the WARN Act because no other federal statute that I'm aware of defines part-time employees as somebody that's only you know that's worked for you for less than eight months. Yeah, that's very good. That's very helpful. Uh, now, I assume it makes no difference. We're talking about part-time is defined by the Warren statute. It doesn't does it make any difference whether they're employed by a temporary agency or a, 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 a vendor or the employer. Does that make a difference? Uh, it can. So that's that's a, kind of a hot topic in the Warren Act. So a lot of times employers are sitting around thinking, well, I've got all these temp company uh, workers here. I They're not my employer, you know, my employee. I don't have to worry about them. I don't have to calculate them in the in the Warren calculation. I can just call the temp agency and say, hey, I don't want these 150 folks working here anymore. But that's not really necessarily how it works. Uh, 
uh, under the law, if, if you could be deemed a joint employer of these staffing company workers, meaning you tell them what to do all day, you're supervising them, you, you tell them when to come into work and so forth, there's a pretty good argument that you could be deemed a joint employer of those employees. And so if you're a joint employer of them, then you're an employer of them under the WARN Act, and they would have to be included in, in your calculations. But the part-time definition sometimes will exclude a lot of those folks because they might either be working less than 20 hours a week, or they've only been working as a temp employee for you for less than eight months. So mm -hmm. a lot of times you, you don't necessarily want to have temp employees more than eight months if you're going to have a lot of you know, layoffs. I know you use the term single side of employment. That sounds like one of those legal terms that gets thrown into statutes that probably involves a good bit of litigation. So what do you mean by a single side of employment? Yeah, typically, uh, you know, the default rule is going to be that if you've got a, a geographic location or a, a plant, that's going to be the single site. Um, if you've got separate locations, even if you've got two manufacturing plants that are 10 miles across town from each other, each of those are going to be considered a separate single site of employment, uh, unless you have employees that can show up to work at either site or you have a lot of interchange of equipment and so forth. So, uh, you know, the default rule is if you've got a physical address and a plant, that's going to be your single site. And, and the reason for that is what the WARN Act's trying to prevent is, let's say you've got five facilities across town and you've got 100 employees at each site. So you've got 500 employees. They don't want you laying off 75 employees at one of the sites and saying, aha, I've only got 75 of 500. I don't have one third of the workforce so I don't have to give warn notice. No, they're going to say, no, you've got 75 of 100. You're over 50, you're over a third, you have to give notice. Hopefully we're way past COVID. And I try to avoid bringing up COVID issues and anything I discuss these days because of how much we did have to discuss it. Uh, but how do you handle remote workers? Because I'm still out there and I'm aware people do have a lot of remote workers. How are they handled under the WARN situation? Sure. So the WARN Act's been around for a long time, and, and the Department of Labor a long time ago, way before COVID, issued regulations that they described as uh, applying to workers whose primary duties involving working outside of a regular employment site like, and they say, bus drivers, salespeople, railroad workers. Well, that's now been applied to all of these remote workers who uh, because of COVID or other reasons, are now working remote. So this is a this is a real hot topic now in the WARN Act litigation because some employers have a third, half of their workforce or people sitting at home, you know, on their computer screens. So what do you do with them? Well, you have to find a single site of employment. You have to find a home for them when you're doing the WARN Act calculations. And this old regulation that applied to railroad workers and bus drivers and so forth has been applied by the courts that are looking at it now to all these remote workers. And that regulation basically has a three-part test that you look at to find a home for these remote workers. And they, they somewhat overlap, but basically the, any of these three things can apply to find a home for them. What's their assigned base? What's their home base? Well, that can be their home. I mean, a lot of employees, uh, their home base actually is their home. So in that case, obviously, you'll never get to 50. 
employees being laid off from somebody's home. Uh, but the other two from which their work is assigned can be their site of employment or to where they report can be their site of employment. Now for the COVID employees, that's pretty easy because where did they where did they used to report before they started working from home? That's going to be their site of employment. But a lot of folks have been working from home forever. And uh, so you, you have to find a place for them. And that can be and that can be very complicated. But, uh, you know, you, you just have to include them in the sites when you're doing your calculations. On the other hand, it sometimes can be a benefit to the employer. You might have a headquarters site where you've got 100 people at headquarters and you want to lay off 75 people. You think, aha, I've got a Warnack problem. Well, if you can argue that you've got 300 remote workers who are reporting to that site, now your population pools 400 and you're laying off 75 and you don't have a war notice obligation. Huh. A lot of calculations. I assume there's no exceptions under the statute for people that uh, work a majority of the time in their pajamas or have uh, phone calls interrupted by dogs. They're not excluded from the statute, I assume. No, they, they are not. There are some exceptions to providing the notice, but uh, but that's that's not one of them. All right, just, just check. Uh, so it's a notice statute, uh, and I know there's a lot of mechanics getting into the notice, and we're not going to do that here, but what are some of the exceptions that employers can look at uh, to avoid giving the notice? Yeah, there, there are three exceptions uh, to providing the notice. Uh, they are, they're a little tricky to allow the employer to, to provide less than 60 days notice. But, but basically, if you have a faltering company, uh, you're scrambling to find capital um, and providing notice to employees that you might go under would prevent the capital from flowing in. Uh, that's one that is very rarely used. And that, that's based on an entire enterprise. That's not just that one plant is faltering. The whole company has to be going under. And that, that's one issue that usually would come up in bankruptcy. Uh, the company, you know, didn't provide notice, went bankrupt. And now they're sued in the bankruptcy court for Warnack violations. And they would try to argue a faltering company. Another one's a natural disaster, which that one's pretty simple. You had a, a giant flood or a hurricane or something wipes out your facility and uh, you, you didn't see that coming. And then the third one is an unforeseen business circumstance. And that one is heavily litigated. That's one where you, you know, you've got a customer that just pulls the plug on you uh, and it ends up now you only need half of your workforce at a, at a manufacturing site because your customer unexpectedly pulled the plug. Uh, there's or there's some other unforeseen business circumstance. So in in that in all of these cases, though, you still have to give notice. You have to give as much notice as is practicable. You have to explain why you're providing less notice. And the biggest problem with these is the employer's burden to prove the existence of the exception. So in all of you know in in the normal case, you can usually go to a plaintiff's lawyer who might sue you under warrant and just say, look, here are the numbers. We're under the thresholds. We didn't have to provide notice. The case can go away. In this case, uh, with these exceptions, you know, you did not provide 60 days notice and you were required to provide notice. So the plaintiffs have a case and they filed it. And now you have to prove your defense, which means you have to go all the way through discovery and these Warnack cases are class action cases because everybody was treated the same, i.e. they didn't get notice. 
And so now you find yourself in the middle of a class action case and you have to prove that the that there was an unforeseen business circumstance that required you to not give notice 60 days in advance, but you gave notice. So then the question in deposition is, well, did what'd you know the day before? Well, what'd you know the day before? Because you have to also prove the existence of the exception and that you gave the notice as soon as you possibly could have. Yeah. So those are problematic, uh, problematic cases. So you, it's much better to give the notice in, in all cases when you can, uh, if, if possible. Yeah. And then uh, if you sell your company as an ongoing concern, then for Warn Act purposes, the employees of the seller become employees of the buyer on the effective date of the sale, and they do not suffer an employment loss. So the mere fact that you sold your business to another, you know, to another company that then continues on using your employees, they don't suffer an employment loss, and you did not have to give a warn notice uh, in, in that situation. What are the damages that an employer would face for failing to comply or, or being found to be in violation of the WARN Act? Yeah, this is one of the simpler uh, answers under the WARN Act. So if you don't give notice, uh, 60 days advance notice, you're liable for back pay and benefits for the period that you don't provide notice. So if you don't give any notice and you should have given 60 days, you owe 60 days pay and benefits to all of your employees. If you give 15 days notice and you should have given 60, then you owe 45 days pay and benefits. So uh, you also would have owe attorney's fees if somebody sued you. And then if you don't provide the governmental notices, so the notices go to employees, union representatives, and governmental agencies. Those are the three recipients. If you don't do that, then you can be uh, subject to a $500 a day penalty up to 60 days, so $30,000 penalty. Mm -hmm. So back pay, benefits, attorney's fees, and a $30,000 governmental fine. So we've been talking about the federal warrant. Again, I know enough to be dangerous. Uh, I do know that there are state warrant statutes. So we don't want to get into all the details of that. But what are the differences from some of the state warrant requirements compared to the federal warrant? Sure, I'll, uh, I'll explain that. There, there's one other aspect of the warrant law, though, that, that I think that, that folks might be interested in. So, you know, it's a 60 day advance notice statute. If you're in the HR department or in the legal on the legal team, there are going to be many, many times probably when management comes to you and says, we wow, we've got to have a, a mass reduction of workers here at the plant and we need to do that next Tuesday. You know, we, we I can't give you 60 days notice. Uh, and the other problem is, even if I know I need to cut 50 heads today, I have to specifically provide each individual affected employee with the, 50, with the 60 days notice. So I have to know exactly which of the employees are going out the door. I just can't send a notice to the workforce saying, hey, 50 of you are going to be terminated in 60 days. I got to say, Joe or Jill, you're going to be terminated in 60 days. So a lot of times it's just it's hard to manage and get notice out in 60 days. So what do you do? Well, there's there's some things that you can do. Uh, under the Warn Act, you calculate these employment losses over a 90-day rolling period. So if you've got to let people go on Tuesday, if you can wait 91 more days to stay under the threshold numbers, then you won't be triggering warn. So let's you have 200 employees at a plant and you've got to let 75 of them go. Well, if you let 
60 some of them go next Tuesday, you stayed under the one third mark. Then you wait 91 days and let the next seven or eight go that would have pushed you over the mark, over the calculation. And so while you're having to employ seven or eight more people for 90 days, that's better than owing 75 people 60 days pay and benefits. Right. So you can delay the terminations. You can use short-term layoffs. Instead of terminating everybody next Tuesday, lay a big group of them off. And as long as they the layoff doesn't exceed six months, they don't suffer an employment loss and wouldn't count. So even if you can't bring them all back, you know, you, you can lay them off and, and plan to bring them back in five and a half months. But during that interim, folks are going to find other jobs and may not want to come back. And then when you call them back in five and a half months, they voluntarily quit if they don't come back. So they never suffered an employment loss in that situation. Um, and, and you can also uh, waive Warnack claims uh, by obtaining releases from employees. So th there are different ways to mitigate the risk and the, and the loss when you are confronted with a situation where you may not be able to give the full 60 days. And then to uh, answer your question about the state law, about a third of the states have their own state mini warn acts and you know each one of them is separate and distinct so it's beyond the scope of this to get into all of them some of the differences in the various states new york for example requires 90 days advance notice not 60 days some of the states have a 25 employee threshold for employment losses rather than 50 like illinois and new york some, when you have a mass layoff, don't give you the benefit of the one-third calculation. It's just a flat 50, just like a plant closing. So if you have layoff 50 employees at a site, you're going to be covered. And that example, of that is California. Some states have different triggering. It's not just a plant closing or a mass layoff. There's some states that have like relocation is a triggering event. Uh, it's not clear under state law, necessarily, what you do with these remote workers, if, if the state law is in Illinois, but the worker is in Georgia working remote, does the Illinois law apply to them? Uh, that's a very specific state law question. And then the last one that I'll mention is New Jersey. Uh, it's probably the least uh, employer-friendly state from a WARN Act perspective. Uh, not only does it have all of the normal WARN Act obligations, but under the New Jersey law that just went into effect in April, the employers are required to pay severance pay. Every other state and the federal WARN Act is simply notice, but New Jersey requires actual severance pay. Now that's going to be challenged and is being challenged, claiming that the severance pay obligation is preempted under uh, ERISA. Uh, but that that state law is on the books right now. The other thing about New Jersey is you don't just look at a single site. If you have a layoff of 50 employees uh, statewide in New Jersey, not just a single site, then you're covered. So there's a lot of state law variations. New Jersey, Illinois, California, New York are some of the more tricky uh, states that you have to consider when you're conducting a mass layoff or a plant closing. Dave, thanks for sharing your thoughts today. Thanks for being part of the Manufacturing Success Podcast. 
We hope everyone found today's conversation helpful and we look forward to having you join us again. Have a great day. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. That day, that was very good. I didn't, that was good. I didn't get the Rift Toolkit in there. Um, This podcast provides an overview of a specific developing situation. It is not intended to be and should not be construed as legal advice for any particular fact situation. Thank you.